Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Delighted to have you with us for Here and Now Anytime, where we give you the news you need to know today and the stories that stick with you tomorrow. Subscribe and follow. We've got a lot ahead for you now. Hundreds of thousands of people willing to risk their very lives to pay tribute to Navalny. That is testimony to his continued political power, even from the grave. Acclaimed Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen reflects on the life of Alexei Navalny and what's next for Russia's pro-democracy movement. It is Monday, February 19th, President's Day 2024. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Shirley Jihad. On the show today, is the nation's biggest gun lobby crumbling? Leaders of the NRA are on trial for loading up lavish lifestyles for themselves using money donated from members. The jury has the case now. And then, to ban or not to ban, that is the question some school districts across the country are considering. Should kids have cell phones at school? Show of hands, please. How many of you think it's a good idea? First, remembering Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, days after his death. He was a target of Putin for many years. He survived being poisoned, arrested, held in solitary confinement, then shipped off to an Arctic prison. That's where Russian authorities say he took a walk on Friday. They say he lost consciousness then and died. He was 47. His wife just announced she would carry on the mission of the pro-democracy movement. Hundreds of people, though, were arrested this weekend in demonstrations supporting Navalny. Russian-American journalist and author Masha Gessen writes for The New Yorker, and she talks with Peter O'Dowd. And I do want to look towards the future, even as we remember Navalny's life, because his widow, Yulia, um, who had been reluctant over the years to step into a leadership role, and yet here she is today on Alexei Navalny's YouTube channel, promising to carry on his work. What's left of the opposition now? And is Navalny's wife the best person to carry the pro-democracy torch in Russia? You know, I don't know that we could really have used the word opposition correctly long before Navalny's death. Uh, In fact, maybe even before he entered politics, opposition in the way that you would normally understand it, which is some kind of organized entity or entities with access to electoral institutions, with access to media, that didn't exist. That hasn't existed in Russia for 20 years, Mm -hmm. since about 2004. But Navalny definitely built the closest thing to an organized opposition movement in Russia, And that is why he was Putin's most frightening opponent. He had the ability to mobilize people. He had the ability to bring people out into the streets. He had built both an investigative organization, which was also a media organization, and a political organization that had outposts everywhere in in Russia, in every administrative district. And there are over 80 of them in Russia. So... At its pinnacle, the organization was vast and as close to an opposition as there is. Now, most of the activists who put it together are in exile, and those who aren't are in prison. Mm. As to your question about whether Yulia Navalny is the best person to lead what's left of that movement, I think unequivocally, yes. There is no doubt that she shares her husband's 
political values that she shares his unbendable will. And as we saw today, and this was really one of the first times that we've seen Yulia Navalny speak publicly, she's an extraordinary political speaker. And yet the crackdown continues because over the weekend, nearly 400 people were arrested in Russia simply for paying tribute to Navalny. Authorities removed the flowers that people had put uh, at memorials. At this point, can Putin control the future of the movement more effectively with Navalny gone? Or do you think what's left of his followers will just be galvanized? You know, I'm not sure that the answer to that question matters. When we talk about 400 people who were arrested, we're talking about tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people who came out into the streets to lay flowers, every single one of them risking arrest and imprisonment. So think about it. Hundreds of thousands of people willing to risk their very lives to pay tribute to Navalny. That is testimony to his continued political power, even from the grave. And um, at the same time, there is no mechanism by which a movement even that desperate and that vast can bring down Putin's regime. Mm. So as long as Putin is in power, which is probably as long as Putin is alive, it's a protest movement. Do you have any doubt that Putin was behind this death? I have zero doubt that Putin was behind his death. And you write in The New Yorker that a dictator's ability to annihilate what he fears is a measure of his hold on power. What does all this tell you about Putin's confidence right now? You know, a lot of people, understandably, but I think wishful thinkingly, rush to say that Putin's decision to murder Navalny or have him murdered is a sign of weakness. And I think they're confusing two things. One is fear, which Putin clearly feels in the face of Navalny and his political appeal and his bravery, and his sense that he's weak or any kind of objective weakness of the regime. The regime is not weak. The regime is consolidated and Putin's paranoia is part of what maintains its hold on power. The more paranoid a dictator is, the more likely they are to anticipate threats, whether they're real threats or imagined threats, and the more likely they are to stay in office until they're dead. We, you know, Putin, in this sense, is a direct heir to Stalin, a man who was as paranoid as he was cruel and who's, who stayed in power for 29 years which Putin is closing in on, and um, and whose reign ended only with his death. You mentioned Navalny's bravery. I'd like to talk about that because he did not have to come back to Russia to face prison. He was poisoned in 2020 with a nerve agent, was sent to Germany to recover. But when he came back to Russia, see, he said it was the best day of his life after five months in exile. He said he wasn't afraid. Help us understand that, what he meant, how that could be. I think that the prospect of staying in exile and becoming politically irrelevant, not being directly involved in every single day of organizing and investigating and talking to people. I think that prospect was terrifying to him. He was a young man who had built an incredible movement and he couldn't stand to be separated from it. Now, obviously, he didn't know that a year later, Putin would start a war that would force the entire opposition into exile, that the center of gravity of opposition media and opposition organizing would move abroad. So he felt that he was really separated from the heart of the movement. And so, yeah, going back to Russia was the best day of his life. It was he was coming back to Mm. his people. He knew he was most likely going to be arrested. 
I think that he also knew that there was a possibility that he would be killed in prison. He certainly knew that that was the project of putting him in prison, was to see him die there. I think he was hoping that there was a good chance that he would outlive Putin, even in prison, that he would be Russia's Nelson Mandela. That was his, um, his role model. Stay in prison, show your commitment to the cause, and emerge victorious eventually. But he also knew there was a good chance he was going to be killed. And what he said was, don't let that stop you if, if I am killed. He kept saying, I am not afraid, and don't you be afraid, the words that his widow repeated today. So he imagined himself as something as a, a Russian Nelson Mandela, as you say, but he also had his critics, uh, occasionally including you. Uh, in his early days, uh, Navalny was kind of known for his anti-immigrant nationalism. Uh, is As we spend time remembering his legacy, do we run the risk of idealizing Alexei Navalny? What do you think about that? You know, it's crazy to say this, but I don't think there's any risk of idealizing him. He was pretty, by the time he died, and for many years before that, he was pretty much ideal. He entered politics not knowing a whole lot about politics or the world or how any of this works. He was not a terribly well-educated man. He was an autodidact who taught himself everything after he became a public figure. And early on, I think he made some major missteps, including making a couple of really horrible xenophobic videos. But his political evolution was like nothing I've ever seen over mm. the course of the last 17 years. He has honed a, a social democrat, civic nationalist political platform, very well articulated, very well thought out, and very far from his early days of appealing to people's resentment against migrant labor in Russia. The Kremlin has weaponized those early videos incredibly well. I mean, they just keep recirculating them on Western social media platforms and all sorts of people keep doing the Kremlin's work of recirculating that. Shockingly to me, after his death, I mean, I have to say I really don't get it. Like when millions of people are grieving, to take him down and smear him with things that he left behind many, many years ago, more than a decade ago, there's just something so anti-humanistic about it. Masha Gessen, I wonder if I may uh, ask you, I've been wondering this, if his death feels personal to you. Because for people who don't know your story, you you know something about being a dissident. You had been a prominent advocate for LGBTQ rights in Russia. The Russian police have put you on a wanted list, accused you of spreading false information about the war in Ukraine. In the context of your own story... How are you reflecting on this news? Yeah, I've actually been arrested in absentia in Russia. Look, I'm one of hundreds of people approaching 300 who have been charged under this particular law. Some of us are in exile and being prosecuted in absentia. A bunch of people are in Russia and serving ridiculous sentences for saying the truth about the war in Ukraine. I mean, the maximum sentence under this article is something like 15 years. So the regime has done everything it can to communicate to all of us that we're not safe anywhere and that will, it will stop at nothing. Of course, the murder of Navalny, the most high-profile Russian in the world, does communicate this message that you know they will stop at nothing. They have no shame. They have no concern about their international standing. They are open and explicit murderers. On the other hand, that's not exactly news. They have been murdering 
civilians in Ukraine for we're approaching the second anniversary of the full-scale invasion. And that is a better demonstration than anything of just the absolute cruelty and ruthlessness of that regime. So now what? I mean, once again, political leaders around the world are furious with Vladimir Putin and Russia. President Biden says there's no doubt it was Putin and his thugs who did this. But what can the U.S. and Europe and, and others do? What should they do? They should help Ukraine defeat Russia and bring down this regime. This is a very specific thing that they can do, that they should do, and that they haven't done. Masha Gessen, a Russian-American journalist and a staff writer for The New Yorker. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Peter. We'll have a link to Masha Gessen's latest writing at our website, hereandnow.org. Coming up, leaders of the nation's biggest gun lobby, the NRA, are on trial for corruption. That case goes back to the jury tomorrow. We'll get the ins and outs of the courtroom drama next. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. A New York jury will resume deliberations tomorrow in the corruption trial against the National Rifle Association and its former head. Wayne LaPierre stepped down as CEO just before the trial began. He and other executives are accused of using NRA money to take exclusive vacations and other perks. And according to state attorneys, they were caught, quote, with their hands in the cookie jar. Courthouse News reporter Eric Ubelacher is covering the case. Eric, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is a civil, not a criminal trial, we should note. Former NRA head Wayne LaPierre and other former colleagues are accused of corruption. What details came up in the trial as far as specific alleged misuses of NRA money? Well, most of the uh, questionable expenses, uh, we can put it, were those on behalf of the former NRA chief, Wayne LaPierre. Um, you know, you mentioned a lot of them off the top there, vacations, um, exclusive trips, uh, kind of schmoozing with some of the NRA vendors to take advantage of things like uh, yachts um, and private jets. Uh, one of the, the big expenses um, that we found most interesting was more than $200,000 in designer suits that Wayne LaPierre uh, said his PR firm forced him to buy. Uh, as it turns out, um, you know, 
witnesses disputed that, and uh, that did directly come out of NRA uh, donor funds. Now, uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James brought the civil case uh, back in 2020. In the final arguments before the jury went in for its deliberations, what were the key points and assertions made by the state? Well, I mean, you know, the, the state has been pretty consistent uh, this whole time in that uh, they want to hold not only Wayne LaPierre accountable, but uh, the executives that he appointed alongside him to, uh, as she said it, um, kind of just destroys the trust of the NRA. And, you know, speaking to a lot of NRA members, that that is certainly the case. Uh, there were people like Woody Phillips, the longtime finance chief, who, um, you know, didn't take nearly as much direct uh, advantage of the donors as the state claims Wayne LaPierre did. Um, but in a lot of ways, uh, the AG says that what he did was just as bad in the sense that uh, he was responsible for a lot of the oversight and kind of keeping that trust with donors. But in reality, what the state claims he did was um, basically skirt oversight by telling his subordinates not to look into certain expenses um, and really allowed Wayne LaPierre to, again, allegedly uh, take millions mm-hmm. and millions of dollars of donor funds from the NRA. Now, in the course of the trial, Wayne LaPierre he he did admit uh, some of t- taking some of these trips. Is that right? Using some of this money? Yeah, that's been the most interesting part. Is that nobody, including Wayne Lapierre, is denying that uh, you know any of this money was taken or any of these trips were taken. Uh, it's it's really just been uh, I guess the intent that has been argued by the defense. Wayne Lapierre holds that a lot of the the trips that he took, even the suits that he bought, were all necessary expenses to the NRA's mission. Um, you know things like improving. The NRA's image uh, was something that he he said the suits were for. Um, he said that a lot of the private jet uh, flights were for security reasons because he faced a lot of death threats and things like that, particularly after the Sandy Hook tragedy and other mass shootings in this country. Um, so yeah, there, the defense hasn't denied. Uh, it's pretty hard to because we have the receipts and we, we saw the receipts mm. here in court and the invoices. Um, so their entire argument has just held that uh, either – they didn't know about certain rules that were being broken or that the expenses uh, that they procured using NRA funds uh, were completely necessary to its mission and that they didn't defy donor trust by, by spending the money that way. Yeah. And let's talk about uh, the NRA, the organization. Its chief financial officer and general counsel are also uh, you know, accused here. Did the association try to distance itself from Wayne LaPierre's actions? In a way, they did, um, and that, again, has been a very interesting dynamic throughout the trial because the NRA is itself a defendant here, but the individual defendants that you just mentioned, Wayne LaPierre and the other two executives on trial here, um, they could owe the NRA itself money. So three of the defendants could owe the fourth defendant damages defending, uh, depending on how the jury uh, finds this case. Uh, so that's been a really interesting part here is that the NRA is trying to basically say that all of these uh, you know, misdeeds by the other three defendants were done completely without the knowledge of their board, that they in fact did violate a lot of NRA policies in doing what they did, um, and that the NRA isn't to blame here. And in fact, in the NRA's own closings, they said that the state acknowledges that they are a victim because they could potentially be owed damages depending on how the jury finds the case. Yeah. And how, how is the NRA doing as this trial continues? Its its membership, its influence? Well, the NRA has, uh, for the past several years, already been um, kind of you know scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of uh, money. They're, they're losing members rapidly and just speaking to a lot of 
NRA members uh, throughout the course of this six-week trial, a lot of the trust um, has has been destroyed because of Wayne LaPierre and because of these uh, the actions of these other two executives and members of the board that were on his side. Um, mm. So the the NRA this is a real turning point for the NRA. There's a lot of people in the NRA itself that are looking to kind of revamp the organization, um, make it a little bit less mm-hmm. polarizing, and obviously get the spending under control. Yeah. Okay. Again, the jury continues its deliberations tomorrow. That's Eric Yubelacher of Courthouse News. Eric, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, teachers report seeing students looking forward, looking up. We mean it quite literally, lifting up their faces after putting down their cell phones when a cell phone ban is in place in classrooms. We'll hear from a couple different school districts tackling cell phone distraction in a couple different ways. That's here for you next. Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Kids of all ages are getting cell phones. How many teenagers do you know without one? Well, all those devices are creating a conundrum for school administrators. To ban or not to ban? The United Nations warned last year that cell phones are a distraction in the classroom, and studies do suggest they hurt learning. But telling kids and parents they aren't allowed on campus is not as easy as it sounds. So let's bring in two administrators with different approaches to cell phones. John Fontaine is the principal at Cranston High School West in Cranston, Rhode Island. His school has a bring-your-own-device policy. John, welcome. Hi, Peter. And across the country in California, Yvonne Shu is principal at San Mateo High School in the Bay Area. That school banned cell phones in 2019. Yvonne, welcome to you. Thank you for having me. Sure. And Yvonne, I want to know more about your phone ban. How does it work? Do you even let cell phones into the building? We do. We are a cell phone-free environment. And so 
Cell phones are allowed on campus. However, students are not allowed to use them during the day. We use a product called uh, Yonder, which is a um, a locking pouch. And so when students come to campus, as soon as the bell rings, we send out reminders. And our teachers do uh, Yonder checks in the classroom when they are going around taking attendance or checking homework. They make sure that cell phones are uh, turned off and um, put in these pouches. Was the feeling that it was just too much of a distraction? Yes, definitely. I would say uh, with my teachers, it was one less thing that they would have to deal with in a classroom. They're already, you know, busy with a whole multitude of other um, responsibilities. We are a one-to-one environment, so all of our students have laptops, whether or not it's a school-issued device or a personal device. And so one less distraction is always very helpful in the classroom. So that's one view. Uh, Let's bring in Principal John Fontaine. Uh, As I said, Cranston High School West in Rhode Island. Your thinking on this is different. In fact, uh, you encourage students to bring their own devices into school so that they can use them. What's behind your school's policy? Unlike the Bond School District, we're not one-to-one. So the bring your own device policy was created because Cranston Public Schools recognizes that students need to be engaged in activities that promote 21st uh, century learning skills. But I think uh, similar to what Yvonne did, we brought in our teachers to create some protocols in place so that way um, teachers could promote those expectations in their own classroom so that way they could be less of a distraction with students. John, you mentioned the 21st century. Are you of the mindset or is the district of the mindset that, look, phones are here to stay. They're tools. We should be teaching kids how to use them responsibly. Um, I, I just wonder if that was your motivation. Yeah, that, that's exactly correct, Peter. Uh, one thing that we did notice um, with cell phones coming into schools before we had the BYOD policy and our expectations for that was that there was a, a power struggle between students and staff. You know, as an assistant principal at the time, I remember the days of walking around and gathering cell phones and headphones and who was in trouble for having those things. And it's created an opportunity for we as administrators in the hallways saying, you know, what we allow and what we don't allow. And when students enter the threshold of that classroom, that teacher has the opportunity to establish their protocols and their expectations in their own classrooms. That way, if they choose to allow students to use those, the expectations are clear to students. Because like you said, you know, when these kids get out of school or preparing them for outside of the high school environment, you know, what do they do with their, with their employer when their employer has some certain workforce uh, and workplace expectations? So that's, that's kind yeah. of the mindset. John, we've been talking uh, with high school seniors across the country. It's part of our Class of 2024 series, and we actually asked some of our students about this very issue. So I want to play some tape here from Aaron Tun. He is from Mariner High School in Everett, Washington, and I think it gets to something that you just said. Most students are quite aware that during class it's not right to use your phone. However, I do think that many students are using their phone during class in a sort of disruptive way, whether to just browse social media, even play video games, or just disassociate themselves from class. So, John, despite your good intentions here, I'm sure you see this. Kids are allowed to bring their phones to school, and then they abuse the privilege, or they violate the rules. How do you handle that situation so that it's not a burden on your teachers who have to enforce and teach? So to be honest, when when I was an assistant principal, we were dealing with this daily, multiple times. If we deal with this two or three times, maybe we deal with it once a week, and we're a school of uh, about 1,800 kids. When you think of that, the frequency that this happened has decreased. So we deal with like any other 
discipline referral that we've had in the past. Yeah. Well, uh, Yvonne Shu from San Mateo mm-hmm. High School in the Bay Area of California, we've got a student for you too. <laughs> this is Leanne Nasser. She's a senior at Fordson High School in Dearborn, Michigan. Her school, uh, like yours, has a pretty strict cell phone policy. They're only allowed to use one before and after school or during lunch. And she told us how not having her cell phone can be inconvenient. If you just need to simply research something or use a calculator and you don't have like a calculator on hand with you. So yes, there's a lot of reasons, a lot of ways it can be used irresponsibly, but I don't think it overpowers every reason for your phone to be used responsibly. So what about that? Do you worry at all that kids would be missing out on an opportunity to learn how to use their cell phones as a tool and and not just for school, but maybe later in the real world, as John mentioned? Um, I'm not sure if we are, you know, keeping students from learning how to use their cell phones. I think now students can use their cell phones and know technology much better than any of us adults do. Um, Mm. Just like John had said, you know, we have autonomy within a classroom. A geometry teacher might take their class out onto campus to take photos of different angles of, you know, the architecture and things like that. So there is the autonomy, but for the most part, um, you know, that student even said they... um, are allowed to use their cell phones during lunch. We don't allow that, so it's bell to bell from the start of the school day to the end. Um, and we definitely find a lot more social interactions between our students, being able to see our students' faces and their eyes and their smile um, as they walk around the classroom instead of looking down at a cell phone. Groups of students being able to talk to one another instead of sitting in a circle and texting one another. And so mm-hmm. we've seen some positive interactions um, that way. You know, um, ultimately, I, I know you both care very much about the schools where you're working and the students who are there. You want to make sure that kids can do the best that they can. It is tough to be a kid these days, as you well know. I mean, the pandemic set learning back uh, quite a bit. Teenagers are struggling with mental health. I'm curious, I want to give you both a chance to answer this this, this question. How have you noticed uh, that your approach to technology in the classrooms, how has it helped your mm-hmm. students and transformed learning? And Yvonne, we'll start with you. Sure. I think, you know, with the distractions, like when we first had implemented our cell phone free environment, you know, students reflected back at like how many notifications that they would get, you know, from Snapchat, Instagram or whatever, uh, how distracting it was. And then not having that access, they could focus um, much more um, or they weren't worried about what somebody was saying or posting or, Mm. you know, otherwise, you know, it's interesting because we do uh, survey our students to find out kind of their feedback. And, you know, a lot of students don't like Yonder, but they understand, you know, the benefits of it. Um, While we are cell phone free, students understand like that there is an appropriate place and time uh, for Mm. cell phone use. All right, John Fontaine, uh, I'm going to give you the last word. Do you think that your cell phone policy, allowing them in schools and in classrooms, has enriched the education of these kids? What you had asked just recently was about the pandemic. I think what the pandemic allowed all of us to do, uh, the key word, I think Yvonne will nod her head when I say this, is flexibility uh, with students Mm -hmm. and how they learn. And I think it's important, like what Yvonne and what we've done is – to engage with your staff members, engage with your families and students, because what works somewhere may not work elsewhere. And in this case, you know, utilizing the technology 
to enhance and enrich learning and those opportunities for when kids leave our classrooms and enter the workforce or go on to college. Two high school principals with different policies, but it also sounds like there's a lot of common ground. Yvonne Shu uh, of San Mateo High School in the Bay Area of California and John Fontaine of Cranston High School West in Cranston, Rhode Island. Thanks to you both. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for having us. Our show comes to you thanks to the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. The stories today are produced by Adeline Sear, Thomas Danielian, and Hafsa Qureshi. Our editors are Todd Munt, Micaela Rodriguez, and Kat Welch. Technical directors are Mike Moschetto, Caleb Green, and Michaela Varela. Mike Moschetto, Max Liebman, and Chris Bentley created the theme music. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. I'm Shirley Jihad. Thank you for being with us. Subscribe, and we'll see you tomorrow. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR.